Hi, this is Vince Gilligan, and I wanted to give you a quick note about the podcast you're about to hear. It was recorded before the great Robert Forster passed away, so you're not going to hear any mention of that. And I want to take this opportunity to, to say what a wonderful gentleman he was, what a great actor. He is fondly remembered. He is terribly missed. Here's to you, Robert. everybody welcome to the breaking bad insider podcast well i can yeah. kind of finally say that again and not make it be a mistake um hey my name is kelly dixon i'm here with chris mccaleb and Hello. guess what we're gonna bring you the el camino breaking, bad, breaking movie bad movie that everybody has been on chris and i on twitter asking about and yes even so though we did not technically work on the movie we had nothing to do with the a movie. lot of questions <laughs> about the movie and uh but guess what we have seen the movie we have seen the movie, and we have the inside access to all of the, you know, big names behind the movie, That's which is right. why we're here doing this podcast, right? That's right. Should we go around the table and uh, sort of introduce people one by Absolutely. one? Absolutely. But Chris, it's so good to see you again. It's good to it's, see it's you. It's like I've been away for a year, and you've been doing such a great job on Better Call Saul, oh, and thanks. I'm very excited, and it's great to see all of you. I'm here with Vince Gilligan. Hello, writer director of El Camino. I'm it's gonna I'm like gonna it's gonna be hard for me not to say Breaking Bad movie instead of <laughs> just don't call it Ranchero. We're also here with I I don't think that you've done a podcast with us before. Mark Johnson, executive Hello, producer Mike jo Mark Johnson, who actually has had probably the longest relationship with Vince Gilligan that that I think at this table that we know of. His mother beats me. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> but so glad, so glad that you were able to join us, Mark. We also have Melissa Bernstein, executive producer of El Camino. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I have a scratchy voice, but I'm very excited to be back with you guys. We're at excited this to table. have you. Do you want to take the rest? Yeah, absolutely, Kelly. Another one of the producers of the movie, Charles Newworth. Nice to be Yay. here. It's great to have you. We've, Charles, we've never, you've never been in one of our podcasts before. Have I you? have not. Okay. I'm real excited about welcome, this. Welcome, this welcome, welcome. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for coming out today. And you came all the way from another country to come work on this? I did. I flew about 15 hours from Sydney, Australia. I got Ooh. here uh, yesterday morning and wouldn't miss this for anything. You see, you hear that, listeners? Like, that is commitment to this podcast form. You had a meeting tomorrow, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, on the red carpet with Mr. Vince Gilligan. That is right. <laughs> That's right, we're taping this yes. as we tape this. It is about 24-plus hours before the big world premiere. That's right. We also have the director of photography of the movie, Marshall Adams. Yay! Yay! Hey, Marshall. Hi, good, thank you. It's good to, to see you. Here. Marshall, you've done the Better Call Saul podcast before, right? I have. I've done... Two, I think, actually. That's yeah. what I thought. That's yeah. awesome. We, we just, to also in disclosure, we just finished shooting the next season of Better Call Saul. And so uh, I'm sure five. it's nice to, yeah, season five. And uh, I'm sure it's nice to get some rest. Absolutely. Lots of exciting stuff coming up. I'm looking forward to color timing. And then we also have the production designer of the movie, Judy Ree. Hello. Yay, Judy. Thanks Yay. for coming. Happy to be here. This is your first time doing our podcast, right? Correct. I've only done the DVD commentary for Saul. This is my first podcast. Nice. And you were the production designer on season four, four of Correct. Better Call Saul. Yes. And in all the way from New York City. Yeah, I was going to say, she flew from also, New York. Also, that's right. You still beat her, Charles. <laughs> this yes, is, she did. This is, how, this is how much we care about this podcast, is that we, we, we import people in from other, other states, other countries. Uh, other projects. 
and then and then uh, all the way from an, uh, just uh, another part of the city on the, the the board over there on the ones and twos. He also worked on this movie as, as an assistant editor, Joey Reinish. Hi, everybody. Hello. This movie's pretty good, you guys. <laughs> I love this movie. I I told you that when I when I the first time I saw it, I uh, I. Turned right to you, and I, I just, I really, I, I love the texture of the movie. I love the experience of just getting to spend more time in this world and and uh, on a story that that I found really dynamic and engaging. And and it's, uh, this doesn't have to be the love fest that everybody complains yes, about this does. podcast <laughs> being. But I did, I just to start with, I just, I loved it. Oh, thank you, man. Oh, and before we, I want to say real quick about Joey. Uh, if you if you are uh, a fan of the movie and you were looking at. Uh, at the posters and whatnot, you want to, you want to, no, you please, you can keep going. We had, what was it? The teaser poster. Was that what it was? The, yeah, it was I the, we, so, yes. we, the very first poster that came out, uh, uh, folks listening to this probably saw it. Um, if you're bothering to listen to this, you probably saw the poster and paid attention. The one that was a, uh, diagonal, uh, black diagonal, uh, and yellow on black on one side of the diagonal, yellow and green on the other side, and it was an El Camino driving up this very steep diagonal, this steep hill. That was designed from scratch by Joey, our, our amazing assistant editor on Better Call Saul, amazing assistant editor on the on the movie, and uh, as uh, as Chris just said, the engineer in this podcast. He designed that thing from scratch on his computer it was and, a, it was a group effort yeah. it, it was, sounds like a renaissance it, man to me. it does and and participated in designing the credits as a whole yes and is the father of the two of the twins that are credited as well yeah, they're so, first right yeah. yeah that's nice. right yeah <laughs> You know, a lot of people have to work years and years to get their first credit, and those babies just like right out of the gate. That's not fair. Um, they are really cute, though. All right, I'll allow it. A lot of credits for Joey. Yeah. A lot of well deserved. Yeah, yeah, I'll credits. show up to any podcast. This is nice. <laughs> if 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 I haven't already said it, or if we haven't already said it at the beginning of this, if this is the first time we're saying it, if you haven't seen the movie, stop the podcast right now because we're really gonna get. We're, we're this is a spoiler heavy. Full disclosure: We're going to assume everybody's seen the movie, so uh, yeah, that's, and that way it's not a spoiler. Duly warned. That's right. Yeah. Do uh, so you want to jump in? I'm going to start where usually where I start. I mean, um, I really appreciate you guys, you know, asking me back to do this because I literally had absolutely nothing to do with this. I never even read a script. I heard about it probably when you guys are probably deep into prep. Um, I was off doing something else, but I appreciate you asking me back to uh, oh, to talk to you about it. So it wouldn't be a podcast if you weren't on it. Uh, that's a, I so appreciate that. But what I will say is I usually start, and you know where we're going with this. So how did this come about? <laughs> you know, where did this start? I'm What's very curious to know about the genesis of this whole thing. You know, I just, I really, um, Breaking Bad ended in, in a very satisfying way for me personally. Uh, and not to speak for the fans of the world, but I have heard the vast majority of them like the ending very much too. And I, and as we all know, it was hard fought, but we were all, all the writers, uh, and myself, we were all very proud of the ending. Uh, all of that to say it ended of, I mean, it, it, there, it, it probably didn't need any more explanation. It probably didn't need anything further. That was by design. Having said that, as the years have progressed since 2013, when the last episode aired, I kind of did find myself wondering as I was, you know, trying to fix something around the house or, I don't know, driving down the street, how did he get away? 
because that's like, how, that's not easy. How does that happen? And then also, I, I really love working with Aaron Paul. I, and, and I hadn't worked with him for since the last episode of Breaking Bad. And uh, for those two reasons, I found myself thinking more and more, what if we did something uh, that, that shows a little bit of what happened next? And the 10th anniversary of Breaking Bad rolled around last year, 2018. And I thought originally, well, maybe we do like a little 10-minute or 12-minute little mini episode and get Aaron back. And we started to talk about how we could make that special. And you started to think about what that would be. And it and it really just kept getting deeper and longer and more involved and really was like a story that was taking shape in your brain that needed to be told. Yeah. Um, and it was it started off as like a very small thing that I think yeah. ultimately you know, became a feature length. And how, how early did you get Aaron involved? I mean, because obviously he's pretty early. So critical and he's, to the yeah, movie. and he's also a busy guy. I mean, he he's like, sure. got to be scheduled. That's sure. kind of the reality. Of- I wasn't that worried about scheduling it because uh, I was worried about whether he'd be interested in doing it or not. I had a strong suspicion that he would because of my various uh, conversations and interactions with Aaron over the years. You know, primarily every time I would see him, he'd say, what am I going to be on Better Call Saul? So that's a good indicator right there. <laughs> but I, I had to know that he wanted to do it before I was going to sit down and write it. And I take forever to write, and you know, especially working by myself. And this is the first time I'd worked by myself on a script in God knows how many years. That was my next question. Yeah, it's a, it, was, <laughs> it was scary. It was scary because I'd forgotten how to do it. Like I lost those muscles. I'm used to being in a writer's room. Right. But I needed to know he was interested. I figured the rest would take care of itself. The scheduling would, would get worked out. Did you ever think of telling a different story of doing something other than, uh, than Jesse? That's a good question. I'm trying to remember. Um, not really. I don't think so because – I mean, I love all these actors. I'd love to, I'd love to work with them all again. Uh, but yeah, it was really. You don't think every one of them wouldn't wouldn't give his or her eye teeth to revisit their character? Well, I mean, I I would. Yeah, I guess selfishly, I would hope they would. Mm-hmm. I, I just it's how do you make a movie out of? Uh, and there's you know there's a way to make a movie out of all these folks. And and God knows every single one of these actors on on the show. Uh, Anna Gunn and Betsy Brandt and uh, Dean Norris and R.J. Mitty, all of them could carry their own movie. Mm-hmm. And Mark, uh, if you're hinting at something, we don't know about it. We're just put, I'm putting it out there no, right I'm now. Just asking we we don't know about it. I just remember being in a meeting with uh, Vince and Melissa at Sony and when, when the idea of a movie came up and I've never seen a bunch of happier executives in my <laughs> life. <laughs> Well, I'm curious, Vince, because, like, let's say you're at your house. I don't know if it's a Saturday, but it's a nice morning. Your house gets nice light. You know, it's it's Southern California. At what point you're like, okay, now I got to go and open up the final cut, and if you, that's what you use, and or final, is that draft. Final, final draft. draft yeah, sorry yeah. about that. And and start like typing. The final draft's the easy part. Uh, okay. as, as folks have listened to this podcast, but, but yeah, no, when when it is time to sit down, yeah, I mean, this was just like with Better Call Saul. I sold this thing before I really knew what it was going to be, which is never smart. <laughs> so I don't know why I did that. Or is again. it the smartest thing? Because then it forces <laughs> you to get in Because it forces you, yeah. It's like... Solve it's, those problems. It's like that, uh, it's like that, uh, that amazing skydiver who 
jumped out of the plane without a without a chute. And then I'm gonna find that net's down there somewhere. I know I'm gonna find it. Oh Jesus! You know someone really did that. <laughs> that's a real story. <laughs> that's a real. Th- oh, look it up on YouTube. I, I was oh, there Jesus. actually. I was there. Were you? Yeah, it was out in the desert outside of Canada, yeah, outside oh, wow. of L.A. And and there's a stunt guy. I know this guy, Jim Churchman, who is one of the finest sort of aerial stunt guys. And uh, he designed this thing, and, and I went out and watched this guy make the jump into this net. It was definitely a nail biter. That's it was fantastic. I apologize to the to the to the brilliant uh, skydiver who did it. Is is his name Scott? Uh, you my, know what, Mike? Hey, Mike Bearman Trout. Uh, <laughs> Mike Bearman Trout, of course, is our trusty office bear uh, and uh, kind of a cantankerous guy. Hey, Mike, do you, what was the name of that skydiver? Oh, that was uh, Luke Akins. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. I, 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 yes, okay. I had. Uh, how did I draw a blank on that? But yeah, he he was. Uh, you were there when you it saw was, it happen. It was amazing. Holy it was amazing. Crap. Yeah, I think Red Bull covered it, yeah. and uh, how the and fuck we, did we get on this segue. That's the one I never would have thought. This one, this is one of those fucking podcasts. It's like five and a half hours long. Vince was talking about you know basically like creatively jumping out of the plane without a shoot. You got to find that net. You got well. It's but I. That's probably not. I wouldn't advise that to anyone listening. Saying, "Ooh, how do I do this?" I. It's probably not the best way to do it. But having said that, uh, God, did I get us off on a tangent? I apologize, America. Uh, but uh, and, the world. and the world. Sorry to leave the world out. Um, the the hardest part is uh, is is the boarding. As anyone who's listened to this podcast in the past knows. So the cards you got. So the cards you got down. the cards. Although I got this new uh, app that I bought for maybe like I don't know four bucks on the iTunes store that allows me to do the little index cards on my uh, iPad. So it's actually, it seems like, what is the point of that? What's wrong with actual index cards? But it actually, I enjoyed using it, but it took months just to board the thing. By the time you open up final draft or write it, that's the easy part. It's the structure, writing the dialogue. That's the, that's the fun part. That's the, that's the vacation at the end. It's coming up with the structure is the hard part. Was it always um, a story that you were just going to start from like day sort of day one of or that night? Was it was it always going to be the next moment of Jesse and starting from there? It went all kinds of different ways. And and I had a version for the longest time that I had all kinds of cards for on this little app of of Jesse hanging out with, of all people, the ghost of uh, Uncle Jack. For instance, not literally, oh. not literally, but something in his mind where he's he's just he's so beaten down, he's so downtrodden that he doesn't even believe in himself anymore. So he's got Uncle Jack who just appears next to him. It's not literally a ghost, but it's in his mind where Jack is saying to him because he's by, by himself for most of, in that version of the movie. He would have been by himself most of the time. And Jack saying, uh, you know, you you need to kill this kid. He just saw you. You need to shoot this. Uh, this uh, this uh, convenience store clerk in the face, you know, you know. This otherwise you're dead. And you're getting caught, you know. It's getting all kinds of bad advice from you know a dead Nazi. Uncle Jack always says. <laughs> yeah. <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought about it. And I thought I, you know, I don't want to be known for making the most depressing movie in the history of the world. <laughs> so I went another way with it. But uh, that's a trick when you don't have a writer's room. If it, I would have, I would have kicked that idea around maybe for an hour or two in a writer's room. And everybody, I would have just looked at everybody's faces, and they and the look in their faces would have been, nah. <laughs> but instead, when you're by yourself, you kick it around for two weeks. So, right. And then you say, nah. Well, <laughs> did you ever have uh, any characters, any known characters, who you ended up taking out of the draft? Man, I know a big one that I put in, uh, based on other other people's notes. I hate to admit it, 
uh, Kristen Ritter's character, uh, Jane, was not in the movie at the beginning. Not in the first draft that you guys read when you first read it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, I think that's true. And Peter Gould read it before we went into, or as we're entering pre-production, and he, he gave me some real good notes. The best one of all was, he said, I really think you ought to find a way to get Jane in the movie. And I remember my first thought was, ah, I just feel like I'd have to kind of shoehorn her in. I don't know how where I would put her in. He said, well, all I'm telling you is, as a fan of Breaking Bad, I'd love to see her one more time. And, and it's a wonderful moment. It's yeah. a wonderful little conversation they have. And you gave us your uh, one of your very best notes, uh, which came at the end of the whole process, uh, in, the, in the editing, was you... Even though it was a wonderful moment, and even though the audience does want to see her, you gave a note to me in the editing room saying, cut her down. Or rather, not cut her down, cut this there. Because in the original version that was shot, which hopefully you'll see uh, as, a, as a Blu-ray extra at some point, a deleted scene, an extra on our, on our Blu-ray that eventually comes out, is we had this, uh, the whole scene with Jane was quite a long, I mean, not long, long, but maybe like two-minute long scene where they're talking on the side of the road, and you suggested cutting that out. And when you told me that, I thought, oh, my God, well, this is gold. Why are we going to cut gold out? And you were right. At, at that point in the movie, the movie needs to end, and a little, it's, has, it's nothing against Kristen Ritter because uh, just as much of her as, as more, the more of her, the better. But... You know, a little bit goes a long way at that point in the movie, so that was a really good note. I actually had that question for you guys as as producers. Is it ever difficult? Do you ever find yourself in the position of giving difficult notes? How do you, I guess how do you give that kind of feedback? Is there anything? And stay you'd... friends. Yeah, <laughs> I think it all comes down to trust. If the person you're talking to, if he or she knows that you have the the project, the the movie, the the show, the, it's it's best interest in mind, then. Um, then there's no such thing as a bad note. There are notes you can disagree with, but but um, as I say, and Vince knows. I think Melissa and I talked a fair amount about the script early on, and and even if it was something that you didn't agree with or didn't want to hear, you knew that it it came from a not only a constructive place but a place of somebody who already embraced the movie you were about to make. You know, I know you said you didn't have the the writers' room, but how much research or re- reminding, I guess, did you have to do as far as getting your head back into the show or into the story? Did you, or did it all just? Is it all just kind of still up there? No, it's not. It definitely goes away. At least in my, my brain, I'm worried about it. It's I forget more and more, honestly, these days. But I had to. I mean, for instance, knowing the hardest part. Going forward was was going forward. That part didn't take a lot of research. Uh, I, I sort of, Jesse's voice came back to me as I was writing his dialogue. And he doesn't even talk that much in the movie. Skinny Pete and Badger, they talk a lot. And, and, and their dialogue just has always been kind of uh, easy and in a, in a very fun way, just making up the kind of smack talk they give each other. But flashbacks like when Walt uh, and Jesse appear and when, when Jane appears, uh, stuff like that was, was, did take some research because I needed to kind of dovetail it in to where it fits into, the, you know, for instance, the scene with Walt and Jesse, that fits into uh, the episode Four Days Out. That's a, essentially, you could call that a missing scene. Somebody somewhere out there could, could probably cut that into uh, that episode and it hopefully would fit right in. I could in. cut that in. I did that episode. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You, you edited that episode. That's pretty, right. pretty easy. It comes yeah. right after this and right before yeah, this. Yeah, it comes right after. We're wearing the right, same clothes. Yeah. Well, yeah, because uh, our, our uh, Louise Frogley, our uh, excellent uh, wardrobe designer, 
costume or uh, uh, designer, uh, she and her uh, folks working with her had to go and, and recreate all those clothes because they couldn't be found anywhere and all that. There was a lot of a uh, lot of logistical uh, issues with all those kind of things. Not to mention having Brian Cranston there, who who I know oh, where yeah. Brian Cranston you know, was, in was in at New that York point, doing yeah, a show yeah. with hair and everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm all like, that wait a, a minute, Brian Cranston was like a, on Broadway. He was a good cover for us actually because like he was working on you know yeah. on a show six days a week yeah. so everyone's like well like it's not it couldn't possibly be true because we know where brian is oh yeah and that helped us out so, a lot actually charles tell us about that what went into the the, to the actual logistics well, it, it was it, it definitely was a little tricky you know we wanted to keep <laughs> everything undercover and and for instance it started just with his look and to get uh, the proper hair look or lack of hair look we uh, we uh, we had to do a bald cap for him, and so we sent a team from uh, K&B. from K and B here in Los Angeles, uh, undercover, out to, uh, out to New York City, and we we uh, we got a hotel suite, very very quietly, did nothing near the theater where where he was performing, and they went in and they outfitted him with his bald cap, manufactured it, and then to get him into uh, into Albuquerque, of course, we didn't want to have him on a on a plane. Uh, a public, yeah, uh, where people go, oh, Brian Cranston flying off to Albuquerque. <laughs> mm, that's a coincidence. So we actually chartered a plane and flew him in undercover and uh, put him up uh, actually in a, in, a, in a private home, which we did with many of the cast. Uh, anybody who was pretty recognizable ended up being not in a hotel, uh, but in a private home. And so we were very, very covert about all that. And so successfully got him in and got him out uh you know undercover what uh, time of year can i ask you what month this was i was just curious that was in january if i'm not mistaken and we actually had to plan that well in advance because there were only a few days when brian was available and he he told he told us when we would be shooting yeah Yeah. he He basically his schedule was that limited i was gonna say because he he was was working working. six days (laughs) six days a week and we had to find a very narrow window so we got you know flew him in flew him out and uh, he had other commitments and uh yeah, we, we feel good. We successfully pulled that one off. It was astounding what you guys pulled off, the logistics. Yeah. He had a 36-hour window, as I recall. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's and amazing. Astounding. And, and I will say that I was um, – Chris and I were just working, uh, buzzing through the, the movie, and I actually thought that that was a real location. It is not. Those are – all everything out those windows is visual effect. I'm so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. like, everything out the window is a visual effect. Absolutely, is a is a is a plate. It's a plate of of a real life place. But but it's, but it's done on the stage. It's all well. well no, actually, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. The, oh, no, the vehicle sorry. was there. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, actually, we shot it's at a, a place, the, a very real location. Okay, I apologize. Ca- called the Owl Cafe, which is fairly well known restaurant. Very well known. Located yeah. in the city, though. In, not, right. Yeah, yeah. Not but it's smack in the middle of the city in a place that's fairly public because it's near it's actually near a freeway on and off ramp on a very busy thoroughfare so what we did to really block everything off we put very large screens green screens which we needed for the compositing of the visual effects right. shot but it also provided us with almost like a sound stage experience right. where no one could see what we were doing and we did have the motorhome park. I was going to say, yeah. how'd you guys truck in that? And we were using the RV that is located in New Mexico, in Albuquerque all the time, that does the tours, the oh. Breaking Bad tours. Whoa. Right. We borrowed their RV. Oh, so you didn't get the one that sits at Sony. You just, oh my God, that's yeah, so funny. Yeah, we used the one that was already located in the city. And as a like extra theatrical level, 
we had our PAs ready with um, RV tour brochures so that if anybody came by and was like, I know that's the, the <laughs> RV, you're shooting the movie. They'd be like, no, 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 this is part of the RV tour. Here you go. This we is have a commercial brochures. for the RV tour, right? Yeah. 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 Essentially was the cover story. Yeah. You guys that's did such a great job. And actually, I'm, and that was um, one of our AD team's ideas specifically. It? Yeah, wow. that was uh, Nathan. Nathan, Davis's. that was Nathan's yeah, idea. I love Nathan. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. I love that. Do you, you know, you remember that story? This is a digression. You remember what they did? Remember uh, the biggest uh, thing in the world uh, when Dallas? Dallas was the biggest TV show in terms of viewers back in the late mm-hmm. '70s, and the question was, uh, the you know Bobby Ewing uh, like gets killed one year, and then he comes back, and you know who killed Jr. No, who killed Jr. No, no, that no, that was that that was the biggest one. All who uh, killed Jr. But then Bobby Ewing one year. He's in the shower. He's in the shower, <laughs> and and he and he's it's the beginning of the season. He's in, in the shower. They shot it. They shot him in New York City. They hired a crew. They told everyone involved in the shower scene that it was a commercial for shampoo. And they had Patrick uh, Patrick uh, Duffy. He was the only one who knew on the whole set. He and the director. And they had him in the shower, and he turns, and he looks at the camera and says, oh, it's you, or whatever the line was. And everyone involved in the making, our crew at least, knew what, what the hell was going on. Uh, when they did this thing for Dallas back in the late 70s, it was uh, – the only person, the only two people who know in the crew was uh, the actor and the director. The entire rest That's of the crew thought they were doing, doing a fantastic. shampoo commercial. Yeah. That's awesome. That awesome. Judy, did you have to do anything to the RV to who had the bullet holes in it the and duct tape? Yeah. Right for the outside, we had to recreate a lot of the rust and the uh, the aging, and then the bullet holes had to get added. And because of the the angle of that shot, right. I think being really careful yeah. about exactly where the bullet right. holes were. I think exactly. that was definitely one was of the last of, details that Judy's team was overseeing. Oh, I tell you, your team uh, did such a great... I want to I want to give... I, wanna, I, I, wanna, I don't want to miss this while Judy's here. The shot in the movie where you're looking straight down on Todd's apartment and there's multiple oh, yeah. little Jessies everywhere. I was so excited, backing up a little, and then I want to let Judy take it. I was so excited. One of the things I was so... And then I've got to get Marshall in on this too. I was so excited personally to be shooting widescreen we shoot when i started in television it was four by three and that's the aspect ratio i'm talking about four units across is the screen by three units uh vertically and that's pretty close to being a square and then when i when we were in the x files a couple of years into the x files widescreen tv started coming out and it was 16 by 9 16 units across by nine down and that was much wider super excited when that happened but when you get to do a movie you get to pick your aspect ratio within reason and i wanted to do flat out widescreen which is i think two three nine by by one and uh i was so excited and it was judy who came up the very design tell them that you know what i'm talking about the very design of the entire apartment talk about that so uh dolph's apartment uh when i first read the script and and Dolph, by the way, you're you saying I'm, Dolph? I, you know, it's so incredible. <laughs> I know, right? You're programmed. <laughs> Good word. Yeah, it's it's Dolph is the code word for Todd. Yeah. Dolph is the code word we use throughout production and, for Todd. And yeah. just in yes. full disclosure, we have a, a continuity for the whole movie, which is the, just like a list of scenes and what happens in each scene, and it still has all of the code names too. So, so you're not alone. The the it's it's been deeply programmed. I haven't been. Um, deprogrammed yet so anyway uh when i first read the script uh i did see it as 
poor Jesse's plight of having gone through his whole apartment looking for that last key to his escape, to his new life. And it's sort of, I read it as a God's eye point of view where you're looking down at Jesse in a maze and he can't get out. So I pitched this idea to Vince and he really liked it. So we then designed a set around the aspect ratio for all the rooms that he was gonna go through for all the beats. And it worked and Marshall's photography captured it and it- uh, So basically- That shot yeah. would not have been in the movie if not for Judy, because I was not picturing a straight down shot. In the, in the script, there are multiple Jessies, but I was gonna shoot it just, you know, like you normally would, you know, putting the camera, pointing it toward the living room and there's, with the magic of visual effects, a bunch of little Jessies. But yeah, she said, make it look like a mouse maze and then I can build the whole set to a 2.39 by one aspect ratio. It was awesome what you did. So basically you're saying you guys made a set that when you put a camera very high up in the air, looking straight down on it, the whole thing would fit within the camera's aspect fit ratio. Perfectly. Yeah. And what it did by having all those multiple Jessies, it just, you know, it underscores the freneticism of his search. Right. Yeah. I didn't think about the rat maze part. That's a really cool. Well, that was, that, that's that was totally, all Judy. That, I mean, that to I just didn't think of that, you know, analogy, but it totally looks like that. And then, Marshall, you, you, you and your guys had to figure out where to put that camera. Yeah, well, that was, that was the challenge from the beginning, trying to figure out <clears throat> how to center it and get it so that the, and which lens was going to fit from, from the 50-foot perms. Uh, and not to mention the crew had to rip all of the ceiling out the night before right. and all of the rigging and all the lights that were up there and so that we could actually shoot through uh, the gap that uh, Judy had designed. So you mounted the camera up in the perms. The perms are the permanent uh, walkways, catwalks, way up. And you cannot be scared of heights going up there. You were way, you're 50 feet, 60 feet up, uh, looking straight down onto the concrete floor of the soundstage. And you had to pick the spot for Judy to build the set, right? Is that, is that correct? You got up there and said this no, is where we, you could... <clears throat> we kind of collaborated a little bit about making sure that we weren't in a place that couldn't uh, accommodate the camera. But, okay. uh, but we, you know, we actually ended up in a spot that we had to build a platform to get to to be able to wow. put the camera there so wow. with uh, with all safety and stuff but uh, yeah and then there's a you know great photograph of all of us up there <laughs> looking down and through the hole uh, the the moments before we shot it and I tell you that as a piece of design that was quite a deal because for most of the film there's a hard ceiling in uh, in all of those sets and that is a fairly large set and to get that lifted and out in time and we had a very small window because we had to get it back in a couple days later to continue shooting that was a quite a bit of engineering on the construction crew on yeah. Judy's team and also the grips and whatnot and so that that's one of the I think more challenging bits of engineering I've ever had to do see, see done on, on one of the films where you're actually you know removing the whole top of the set well, yeah, it was yeah. it was pretty impressive I mean those I know they were there from the moment we left until the moment we came back I mean clearing that all that stuff out but each one of those ceiling panels has to be tied back to those perms yeah. so you know, hundreds and hundreds of lines that go up 50 feet. Uh, it's been incredible. The rigging job. is astounding. The, the one, let's give some shout outs to the folks who did that. I mean, the, our construction coordinators were the amazing. The construction team, they were great. Yeah. They did a fantastic job and, you know, they figured it out. And they knew that we had to do it in an eight hour turnaround yeah. and the crew was gonna come in the following morning and we yeah. had to restore it. 
they got it done. And our rigging so me, grips. Yeah. I don't know how those guys. They're yeah. an astounding bunch of. Let me ask you this: yeah. as far as like you're saying, you had to have it back the next day. Why? I mean, did you guys not schedule it to where that would be the last thing, or how did that? No, it was scheduled in a way that was around casting, I believe, and oh, okay. that's that Makes dictated sense. everything. And so we had to shoehorn into that, and you know, you know, because we're shooting it pre-search and post-search. Right. Yeah, exactly. Two time tier, yeah. two time periods. And like right. and um, Aaron's availability was obviously a big deal, but so was Jesse Plemons. Yeah. Jesse was right. coming to us straight from That's one right. movie, yeah. going to another right. movie, and he just had a baby. So yeah. we had a very small window with him. That's why I said in the beginning, scheduling. I mean, this is no joke in Hollywood now. There's a lot of product out there, and you know, people have to be scheduled. It's and astounding what these producers do. It's I, I have no brain for it whatsoever. The scheduling is is an art form unto itself. I I would just I was just grateful as hell they just tell me where to show up and <laughs> what to be ready to shoot and i'd say fine you know and then i'd wander <laughs> off and stare at the sun again or whatever <laughs> but i mean the scheduling is i don't i if i had to be in charge of the scheduling i we, we would have never made over. the movie it's it's like, game you know over. What? we can't do this oh no and this it's is not a big mistake it's also not only you know casting scheduling it's producer scheduling and it's you know who's available like Judy's available and Marshall's available and Marshall's team is available yeah. and it's a lot of you know there's a lot and because there's so much product out there it's you know it's, well, it's casting in front of and behind the camera the, well and the reason really we went while we did and uh, I think Vince was really pushed right? he was pushed to a point with a really hard deadline is because of Better Call Saul coming mm -hmm. back because we had a schedule we needed to come back on that show and Vince was absolutely not going to put that show at a disadvantage no. we used the you know we used as much of the cr same crew as we possibly could so there was a very small window for us to make the movie yeah it we really were also lucky that we had a really good assistant directing crew and they were very good at scheduling oh man john wilbermuth and that thank you charles for john wilbermuth and mm -hmm. uh and katie his 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 uh yeah, katie, his second katie gaylo who yeah, yeah terrific group but i mean it, we really got a great yeah. team there we were lucky there yeah. Had you worked with Jay? You had worked with you hadn't even worked with John before. I hadn't worked with John, but we'd been friends over the years, and uh, so we just kept missing each other on movies, and it was just a great opportunity. And he was a huge fan of the show as well, which, which you know, which didn't hurt. And Katie, I'd worked with. I had just worked on a project with her, and so we 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 really had a great team there who knew how to take something really challenging and complicated and figure out the puzzle because it really, as Melissa said. There, there were so many pieces of the puzzle here yeah. that had had to do a lot of it with casting. And uh, as you were saying earlier, well, why couldn't you just turn the set around? You know, you give it some time. You, ju you just can't do right. that all the time. And so it sort of falls in the don't take no for an answer category. We, we have to do it. So we, we, we figured out a way. How many shooting days were there? I think we were 40, Five. 45 at the end of the day. Yeah. Right. Unless you went back to 44. I remember, but it was I remember 50. It was not. No. Oh, it no, was no, not. It no. was not. It was 44. Yeah, it probably yeah. felt like 50. But well, no. It was <laughs> something. And we, and we gave longer. one up at the end. We ended up picking That's it. right. That's yeah. right. We picked one up at the end of the show. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So, and you think about, if you you know, if you think, what, well, 45 days to, or 44 days, however many it is, to shoot a two-hour movie. Like, well, what are you doing with all that time? But we think about. Uh, this is if you don't, if you haven't worked on a movie. I, yeah. I know, I know, we all know. If you've done TV why versus take, movies, yeah, well, yeah, even yeah. TV. I mean, yeah, yeah. that uh, th you look at something like that shot, that overhead shot that we're all still just so amazed by. Yeah. it lasts about seven seconds yeah. on camera. Well, how long? was Aaron down there doing things <laughs> yeah like for it was hours it right was Joey hours. it was easily over an hour 
uh, yeah. with the camera running constantly, which, by the way, you could not do this back in the old days of film. Right. I right. mean, you, you would have had to stop and start. I guess it was do, it was doable, but it, it would have yeah. been a lot harder. But uh, the camera started running, uh, and it ran for an hour, hour and a half, and I had the voice of God. I had the uh, Phil, our, our, our wonderful sound recordist, had wired hidden speakers up so that I could hold one of these handheld karaoke mics in my hand and sit in my chair and watch what the camera was saying and say to Aaron, okay, go look in the thing, go do this, go do that. I'm just making this shit up as I go. Just <laughs> go do the thing. Oh, get the, get the flashlight. Oh the, oh, the flashlight looks good. Keep using the flashlight, you know, and do this, do that. The thing I was most scared of is he was really knifing the hell out of that, uh, mattress with this really sharp kitchen knife and i was like and i know how into into it he was getting he, you know aaron is uh, when he's in character he's i mean he's just he goes for it a million percent uh and i was i had, I had this really sickly fear that he was going to wind up stabbing himself by accident as he ripped the hell out of that mattress that did not happen they did not thank goodness thank goodness but uh the, and that's really aaron too i mean oh that's every that's every little person aaron down, there, down there in that super yeah. wide shot oh yeah yeah and he he was utterly exhausted imagine searching a house tearing things apart literally just getting your fingernails under the under the uh, wallpaper and because the wallpaper is really on there. I mean, it was yeah. and, and tearing it off and and breaking this apart, breaking that apart. He was just it was like he'd run a marathon by the end of it. I mean, we spent a lot of time in that location. That set is incredible. And in the flashback stuff, how was the decision made for Todd's place to be this like really nice? He's got a lot of good like, taste. It's yeah, very stylish. That place, <laughs> super stylish, kind of a. Like a mid-century vibe to but some But before of it. you before you answer that too, because I'm curious, because that, that was going to be one of my next questions too, is is Skinny Pete has a lot of style too. So Judy, just talk about those chairs and Todd's style. It plays a great. <laughs> those chairs were kind of a note from Vince to say, you know, it should be a special chair that has some personality, maybe has some sort of reference to a show that he may have watched, like maybe even Star Trek-like. So we took that and ran with it and um, found a beautiful chair that we augmented and had a, an auto body painter nearby mm. finish it with this metallic blue. And where are those chairs now? Light. Are, they, are they in your office? Where are they? I, I do hope we have possession of them. Yeah, somewhere. me too. They're, not, they're cool. not at your house, Vince? They're not at my house. No, Holly would not let me keep it. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, they didn't really work. She also has style. <laughs> I think they're in like the Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse somewhere, you know, for, for Sony. <laughs> but they were beautiful. They were they were they hand, were. They were handmade really nice. by, uh, by your folks. And, yeah. uh, and just, you know, it was funny. When I first saw the movie, I mean, I was watching, and I was had Chris on one side of me and Diane Mercer, the post-producer, on the other side of me and um and i was like i just want to like stop like i just want to pause and just look around because they had all that stuff on the shelves and it was way fun in fact once we were done that's what we did was we went there and stopped just so i could look oh great i hope a lot of people do that actually. i hope so too and yeah. i gotta say uh, judy's being sweet and giving me credit for those chairs but i just had the idea designing it's a whole different thing and and all of the greatest stuff that i love the most in that in Skinny Pete's place, that was 100% Judy and her folks, her set decorators. And I love the wagon wheel, uh, that crazy bed 
uh, that uh, Skinny Pete has at Jesse's. <laughs> that as soon as you showed me that, I just I think I just had this giant smile on my face. That was all that stuff was you guys. That was just that the the. the it, Talk about some of those design elements. We, and Judy, you decided yeah. that had that was like his mother's house or something. Yeah, like. we had the history behind everything, which is one of the great things. I love working with Vince. He, he really gets into the history of people's homes and why things are the way they are. There's a reason for it. They weren't just choices like, this looks cool, let's throw this bed in. There's a reason behind it, which is that this was his mother's house. She has We don't really know what happened to her. She either moved out or she passed away. We don't know. Um, but there's some evidence of what was from his childhood throughout the house. There were some areas that we designated were her areas, like the living room, but the den had become his. He had taken over that. Yeah. So we With the big console TV yeah, the, and the, exactly. and the, pla- and the, the flat Yeah, I mean, it's a man cave. I mean, That's it's a funny. fun man cave that he's <laughs> lived in for a while and made his. Uh, so the chairs kind of represent, you know, who he is and what he did with his money. You know, yeah. he bought he bought that. He yeah. had it made, and he went out, and he found some local designer and said, I want a blingy chair where I can sit back and play my games. So I think part of the color, though, and the finish was really determined by the fact that it was going to be shot mostly in the dark. So we wanted some sort of reflection of light That's so right. it wouldn't get lost. Um, and you could see the outline of the shape of the chairs, which was very nice. We found that in L.A. We brought it back and augmented it. So... Um, that was the decision behind his chairs and his plays. In terms of um, Todd's plays, you know, when I talked to Vince early on about who, you know, Todd's personality, who's this very polite, cheerful young man who says, excuse me and thank you and please, but then also has this whole other kind of crazy sick side, like how do you show that? How do you show that without tipping your hat? Which is that on the surface, it's very cheerful. Um, and unexpected because you expect to go into his apartment and have it be this sort of dark you know yeah. creepy but yeah. we didn't want to do that right. so it would have been too obvious it would be yeah. way too obvious but somehow i saw like those paws easter egg colors in a store <laughs> and i thought oh my god his his apartment should be these colors which is kind of sick and twisted yeah. in its own particular way yeah. so we started with the color palette and then i, I found I, as i looked into other colors we found an anatomy poster that also had similar color palette right. and so we started with the anatomy of the heart that showed like a pink and a blue and then as we we determined as we went further into his apartment and when ended up in his bedroom that maybe that the color should go darker. Yeah. And that's how we ended up with the burgundy color in the bedroom. Mm. Where so did brilliant. you find that hideous sculpture in his place? By <laughs> 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 a talented artist in LA. <laughs> I love it. There's a bronze with uh, everybody's laughing because there's a bronze a beautiful bronze. Uh, it looks like a Henry Moore or something to me. It look a little miniature. Uh, it's a beautiful bronze sculpture that we feature somewhat prominently in a couple of shots, in one shot at least. It's on the, if you're facing the, the, the hearth, the fireplace, it's on the right side of the hearth. Uh, what do you call that thing on the, the mantle? The mantle. The mantle. Right. The mantle. And, uh, and it was uh, designed and sculpted 
and created by none other than the Renaissance man sitting across from me, Mr. Charles Newworth. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. <laughs> it really is. It really, it's. It's. I love that. Well, thank you. That. You. You're. You're. You're starting a new career for me. So it's great. You know. So if anybody wants that, uh, newworthsculptures.com. You know, it'll be available for sale sometime shortly after this podcast. The expression is "keep your day job." Yeah. Ow. <laughs> oh, Mark. I wanna, there's another achievement from our AD team, um, Katie. Gallo also she she figured out you know what movie Jesse Plemons was working on and got her like her contacts who are working on that movie we sent up samples of the um, wallpaper in the living room up you know up to Canada and had him take pictures just so we could see how it interacted with his flesh tone oh god that's right so that we could then sh- you know you know, get Judy's color. okay and get Marshall's okay. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, it was such a team effort. And I got to say, you guys, Melissa and Judy, really saved me for myself because they had a better sense, I think, of who Todd was than I did. I, my original, you know, some rough ideas originally of what Todd's play should look like. I had a, had it in my mind that there was a lot more sexual like there was going to be posters of naked ladies and stuff like that, and and but that that would have been too overt. That would have been too on the nose. And and uh, and and also I was I was going to probably err toward colors and and stuff being even zanier, more like you know Pee Wee's Playhouse or something. And you guys really saved me for myself because that would have been too much. It would have been it would have been as we always say in the writers' room, it would have been putting a hat on a hat. When you first lay eyes on this place, and that was the whole point, and that's what was so brilliant about your design. Uh, Judy, as you lay eyes on this place, you're thinking, oh, this isn't what I expected. This is all right. This this seems normal. And then it's all context. The the longer you're in it, the less normal it gets. But uh, it's 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 a way homer, you know. It doesn't right. doesn't beat you over the head mercilessly the minute you lay eyes on it. But your Easter egg idea that wound up a line in the movie that we just made. It's not even in the script. We just I said to Jesse Plemons on the day, he said, you know, Jesse's going to say, yeah, yeah, it's kind of (laughs) pastel. And then I said to to Jesse in one take, uh, I said to Jesse Plemons in one take, why don't you say, yeah, you're thinking of Easter eggs? Because it was, (laughs) you would put the idea in my head, and it's in the movie, so. Great. Let's let's talk about the look of this thing. I was just just looking for a way to segue into that. Speaking of the look of the film, Marshall, this, this movie, it looks different than the show it looks different than better call Saul you want to talk a little bit about designing the look of this film and and what were some of the different like what were the what was the thought process as far as the way this movie looks uh, boy, and what camera sure you decided to yeah. use yeah uh, you know it was a lot of prep time with both Judy and Vince and being able to spend time you know working looking at these sets and talking about the colors and how they were going to interact with the, with the actors and things like that so uh, it was a it was a development. It was an ongoing process. It really was, um, and also you know really wanted to I wanted to pay you know homage to uh, to Michael Slovis, who I think is a fantastic cinematographer uh, who shot the series, and uh, and just uh, tip my hat to him, but also you know bring something new. So uh, so well, that's what we tried to do. What did you shoot on? We shot on 65 millimeter Aeroflex. Uh, it's uh, it's a camera that uh, is only available at Airy Rental, and it's a uh, digital camera. It's a digital right, yeah. camera. Yeah, it's a digital spherical camera, so it's not it's not anamorphic. 
but it shoots in the widescreen format, well, many formats, but, uh, but it's a 65 millimeter. So it's a bigger, heavier camera, but the lenses are beautiful, and it's one of the, the prettiest cameras I've ever, ever gotten And Vincent, to shoot you with. experimented with a number of different cameras in film and, and uh, digital, right? We did. We actually shot tests with just about every camera that we could get our hands on to, to look at and really, really kind of run through its paces and see how it was going to fit with us and different looks. Night, day, uh, low light, high light, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think what was, I was going to jump in, what was fascinating about that process was you were very clever about it because we did a complete blind test yeah. on it yeah. for Vince, who, when we met originally, because you discussed, well, we shot it on film. The, yeah. the series obviously was shot on film, and uh, you know, digital was in, the, was in its early, early infancy at that point. But you designed a way to look at all the tests. From the, I think it was four different cameras that we shot. Uh, four different cameras, six different, because two of them we shot uh, both spherical and anamorphic. So right. we had six possibilities. Right, yeah. right. But what you did very clever with the editors, and I think Diane Mercer was in charge of this, was every time we would see a take with a different camera, she would shuffle the deck. So it wasn't like you were seeing, you know, camera one, two, three, and four in order. Yeah. You didn't know what you were looking yeah. at. Yeah. And Vince, you might want to talk about no, just I'm judging glad, that. I'm so glad yeah, you it was like that a up. beautiful mind version of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. We did something similar, except maybe not quite as shuffled, with the deck quite as shuffled, when we were deciding uh, what to use uh, at the beginning of Better Call Saul. I love film, and I feel guilty. I'll say it right now. I feel guilty we didn't shoot this movie on film, but I don't feel like it was a mistake. I think we chose the right medium, but uh, just like Marshall just said, I I said to Marshall at the beginning of this, Marshall, this is going to be so much fun. We're going to have such a good time. It's more time and more money, longer schedule. And guess what? We get to shoot film, which is awesome because we shot Breaking Bad on film. And uh, it's, it's going to be great. And But then we, we I just figured we had to do our due diligence. So we tested, as, as these guys just said, we tested every camera out there. And lo and behold, the one that, that won the day was the was the sixty five, the uh, the Alexis the Aerie sixty five, the Alexis sixty five, and it it. You know, I I want film to go on living forever, uh, and I want to find a way to shoot it again. But I, the only time this is a, like a weird aside, Christopher Nolan, who's obviously everyone listening knows what a brilliant writer director he is the only time i ever talked to him in my life he called me up we were on better call saul and i got a call from him saying i'm trying to keep kodak in business i'm trying to keep film alive and i hear that you shot you shoot your show on film you know breaking bad and and that uh, i just i want to enlist as many folks like-minded folks such as myself to say to the the folks who run the studios you gotta you gotta keep film alive and I said, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Just in spirit of full disclosure, I sh we're shooting Better Call Saul now on digital. So, anyway. <laughs> and I still feel guilty about that because I want to be a supporter of film. But God damned if uh, digital doesn't look. I mean, listen, just do the blind test. Do it yourself. If you, I mean, I, we were very fortunate that uh, the test we had available to us was, was not something that most people would ever 
get to be privy to a lot of money was spent just on that test yeah it's true and so that yeah, and that camera yeah and that yeah, camera yeah. is not an inexpensive camera i think that's yeah. the camera and the system because there's so much more digital information is something generally not available to tv shows i think they just yeah. something you can't afford to do it yeah. with all the storage that you need and so on and so yeah. forth so and the turnaround and the turnaround yeah, yeah so yeah. it was a it was it was an opportunity i think that uh i'd love to think i'd do something on film again but you get spoiled as a director you get spoiled when I would direct on film, uh, you know, you, I remember, you know, watching the black and white video tap. There was a video tap, a uh, little right angle mirror attached to the eyepiece. So the, the camera operator seeing the image and then half the lights go into this crappy little, little pickup and watching this crappy little black and white monitor. And it was okay because you said to yourself as a director, I know the framing is what I want and I can't wait to see it looking good. Because right now it looks like shit, you know. So, and that was uh, it was like Christmas morning. Finally, eventually you see it, uh, you see the the beautiful color time version of it. But on the other hand, you don't know for sure that you got everything. I mean, talk about it from a DP's point of view. Listen, there are HD taps now, so you can get a pretty darn okay. good image That's out true. of a out of a tap on a on a film camera. But uh, still, obviously, not as good as you know directly tapping into a digital camera. Yeah. But um, my con my problem that I and I love film too and I'm with you all the way and I I really think it needs to continue on. But the the issue that I continue to bump up against is the speed, uh, the speed that we have with the digital cameras that we you, that you just can't do on film. Explain speed to the folks who may not know. Well, you don't, I, you so don't mean how fast a, it takes yeah, to shoot. Yeah, you're talking about something it, else. It's the sensitivity to light. Sensitivity to light is yeah. exactly right. So uh, it. It allows us to use light that's much more uh, natural, that, you know, available light, practicals and things that are available in the world, uh, street lights and stuff and such that, uh, that keeps the lighting budget down, allows us to move faster and make some more creative decisions that, uh, that we couldn't normally make. I and thought you were talking about the, the logistics, like loading film and just the time that it takes and... And also that you're limited by a roll, you know, rolling, you know, 10 minutes and 1,000 feet. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that stuff seems to kind of work itself out. The 10-minute, you know, limit versus 20 is, and I'm not sure that we even had that much more on the Area 65 than, than 10 or 12 minutes either. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it always comes down to speed and, and, and what, we, what we can do creatively. But, for instance, there was the, with, we were talking about the apartment earlier where Jesse's doing his search. And there's there's a moment where he is looking around with a cigarette lighter, yeah. and you might want to talk about the kind of lighting you use for that, which, if I'm not mistaken, was none. It was zero. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Except when he got near the window, so that was pretty much it. Uh, uh, it uh, we you know again that, that the speed of that camera allowed us the ability to not try to have to fake some sort of extra light or anything with that lighter, and we let it do all the work and it just turned out fantastically i was really proud of that stuff because light sensitivity speed uh which is the you know the photographic term is light sensitivity just to reiterate the point and light sensitivity as as marshall was saying it allows him more flexibility as an artist but it does equate to speed on the set because if you don't have to have 12 guys setting up 48 different lights that takes less time it costs less money you don't have to rent as many lights it does equate to speed in terms of uh, potentially Quite the speed more shots for you, done. more shots yeah. per day, yeah. more yeah. Ab ability to get more work done in a day. But none of this would matter, yes, exactly, no, but none of this would matter to me if film still looked qualitatively better than digital. 
I, I would throw all of this out the window. If I, cause when we did this blind test, I secretly wanted to say, okay, that one's film. Number four B, that's film, that's a film camera. And then this take here at night, that's the film camera. And the, if I had been able to do that, I, we would have shot film. I yeah, could we were not. All fooled. Yeah, I, I was. I, that. Yeah, because we all so we yeah, all watched we it all together. Fooled. We all watched it together, and and I was could not. If you had held a shotgun to my head, yeah. and my life depended on it, I couldn't tell the film from the digital. I, Maybe I, somebody can, but I couldn't. I see, I, and I love that the movie has it. Do, it does have its own look, but I think it still honors the look of Breaking Bad, especially in the the so the flashback scenes. I wondered some of the shots appear to be handheld like a lot of the, the photography in Breaking Bad was but I saw that they weren't actually handheld they were that you you shot intentionally shot like a handheld framing chart that could be used to track is what what was the I've never seen that before God bless Matt Cradle our B camera operator for doing that for 40 minutes <laughs> actually shooting a, a plate which yeah. was just a, a white frame with a couple of X's on it and getting all different variations of every lens and size and distance of, uh, of handheld essentially as a plate that they could apply later on. But one of the things that, uh, and as a shout out to my key grip, uh, Jason Cross, he developed a rig that was a, uh, it was an inflatable airbag from a truck in between two plates of plastic and it had uh, bungee cord wrapped all around it and the guys because that camera was so heavy it just didn't make sense to be able to hand carry that thing all the time it was it's in some of the places that we get you know low and, and around corners and things like that so this allowed us to be able to continue to use the dolly uh but still give it a certain amount of a handheld look and even wow. in times when we couldn't use that they applied those plates to uh, to things like crane shots and and other shots that uh, so, that were hard mounted. Just to explain, because this was a new one for me. I mean, I just learned about this like a couple of hours ago. Chris and I were looking at, and we were looking at that at that plate, and I was like, whoa. So so basically, it's that this camera was so heavy that you wanted a handheld look, but it just wasn't physically feasible to do that. So what you did was you basically shot a like a piece of white poster board with some X's on it, and you shot that handheld. So basically, for all of you people out there, it makes the it, it's just a, a piece of cardboard, but the look of the framing around it makes it, it is handheld. And then you take that as a visual effect when you when you do the visual effect and they track your your still or not still, I guess. What is it? Your it's less picture it's, that doesn't move and you track to as, that. Yeah. There's not yeah. quite as much. It's movement. like reference. It, Use it as a reference. Yeah, yeah. Reference. that's amazing. I never plate. even thought of that. And you're, you're tracking the movement that the human being, Matt Cradle in this case, and God bless him because he probably put his back out doing it. But he just sat there for about 40 minutes. So he had every he had every version of handheld you could have for every he had to do it for every single lens. He right? did. He absolutely wow. did. Yeah. This, and and that was so, all intended to yeah, honor the yeah. handheld um, look, look yeah. from Breaking Bad. Is Which that, we is, only use in the flashbacks in this movie, by the way. I'm, right. yeah, I'm yeah. kind of a dope. I've never I mean, I feel kind of ignorant not knowing this. Is this is this like a normal thing? I've never seen this before. Never even. No, talked it was about something it that that, uh, that actually I think that Diane really helped us kind of come up with that. You know, it was a necessity in the in being able to get where we wanted to get with the camera. Yeah, because usually we'll send like something out, just a picture that's very, very stationary. 
and we'll just send it out to a visual effects house and say, put a float on it, and they'll just do it. But I'll this track actually, it. Yeah. I'll track it to other shots. But, I'll do yeah. that. To make it even but, more complex than that, we actually had, for the flashbacks and for the present day stuff, we had two different frame lines, because anything we knew we were going to apply that look to had to be blown up. Oh, yeah, it had so to be blown up. So the frame up, lines, so, yeah. so that we knew exactly where the frame lines were, right. had to be. So it Jeez. had to give us the extra margin on the outside of the frame. And because it was all intentional. Yes. And it, it, it really pays off because it, it, you see it a lot, a lot of times, and you, you might see like fake handheld, and you think that something doesn't look right about that. Mm -hmm. But because you did it intentionally and you, you shot all these things with that in mind, it is actually mimic it's it's moving the way it would if you physically could have yeah. I, that was really smart and it and it really pays off it looks fantastic also it's adding in is it not or maybe i'm wrong it's adding in a bit of the z-axis too right? yeah there's definitely a certain amount of of wandering kind of forward and back that you don't get with with yeah. a two-dimensional mm -hmm. rock and right. uh, and that that really makes a difference that's cool yeah. i want to go back to the the story a little bit um there were things that chris and i were talking about because like i said we didn't have anything to do with this i never even read a script i don't know if you read a script like you know so we're script. coming into this as fans i'm curious about several things i'm going to try and be very concise you chose to play much of this sort of flashback but these are like not i mean i guess technically they're flashback but they're really scenes that we just never saw oh yeah so I'm curious about, you know, your thoughts about Jesse's relationship with Todd and how that evolved. You know, I mean, he's pulling Jesse out of the cage. And, you know, so Jesse is remembering all of this and also going to what the painted desert. You guys went to the painted desert. I don't know if there everything is a memory hit. That, and by the way, it's up to it's open to the audience to to interpret it. I it's in my mind when I was writing it, I didn't. Remember the old thing they do on uh, Saturday Night Live with uh, Wayne's World to go, doo -doo 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 -doo, you know, flashback. I didn't. I didn't personally. I didn't want it to feel like. Uh, I didn't want it to feel like. Oh, now Jesse's remembering this moment. He's staring out the window of the train and remembering a lost love. And uh, I, to me, it's just it's just a form of storytelling where we bump back and forth, bounce back and forth in time. But having said that. I'm not going to tell anyone to not look at it like he's remembering it. And in fact, the one memory hit to my way of thinking is when he's waiting for the strippers and the dudes at the welding place to finish partying. That that flashback to that terrible dog run that uh, Neil built for him. To me, that does, I guess, if there's any memory hit, that one and then the one with Jane at the end, I guess, are memory hits. I don't. I don't want to get all uh, ortho, you know, rigid or overly orthodox about how to how to view it. But to me, mostly it was just bouncing back and forth in time. But uh, I wanted to see. Man, I just tell you, I wanted him to see more Todd. Todd is Jesse Plemons is such a great actor, and obviously, I you know the 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 reason I wanted to do this in the first place, I wanted to work with Aaron Paul again, who's one of the best there is, and uh, one of the loveliest human beings ever to boot. But then once I was into it, I said, well, do we do this character? Do we do that character? Is there a ghost character? Is there this and that? And then it suddenly dawned on me one day, all these actors, by the way, I would have loved to figure out. That's that's an answer to your earlier question. I would have loved to have figured out a way to see Uncle Jack again, uh, for instance. But Todd, played by Jesse Plemons, is one of the more interesting characters we ever came up with. And you wouldn't necessarily know it from watching the show, the series. He is such a unique, in my mind, a unique character and therefore so interesting to write for because he is a murderous sociopath. 
And yet, if you give him no reason to kill you, he's like he'll help you carry your your grocery bags across the street. He doesn't even curse. He's he's this this he's actually very likable. Right. Just for God's sake, don't find his money in his encyclopedias. You know. Yeah. Don't, he's but he's. But he'll feel feel bad about it. And well, that's the best, best well, eulogy of all time. <laughs> <laughs> nice lady, nice. excellent housekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like that's it. It's so awful and ama- and, 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 and and it it toes that line, that tragic comic line. He's so, so damn well. much fun. That him singing uh, along to the Doctor Hook song. That was take <laughs> so one. Great. That was take one. I we, we were we were we were towing him. Uh, it was cold outside, and we're all bundled up, and uh, we're driving through the Painted Desert in beautiful Arizona, and we're towing him in the back of an open. He's he's in his car. He's in his Camaro. His El Camino. Jesus. He's in his El Camino. We're towing him in the back of this open uh, shot maker type truck. I don't know what the unit is called. Yeah, camera, car. Cam- camera car. Camera yeah. car. Camera car. Thank you guys. And I was laughing so hard I couldn't even breathe. I just, I was laughing so I don't know how Paul Donaghy, our, our, our A camera operator, did it. And he fucking nailed it on the he first did. take. He, he knew, I didn't tell him to pan away. I did, he pans off Jesse, uh, uh, Jesse Plemons, when Jesse puts his arm out the window. He pans back, he hits it perfectly. Because the point of the shot, all the funny stuff aside, is you're on Todd, and then only at the end of the shot do you realize there's nobody sitting next to him. Paul is so damn good. He's sure one is. of the best operators I've ever seen, and I feel oh, yeah. so lucky to have him. I mean, he's just incredible. such a storyteller. Yeah, he, so and he just he told just the story. Has that timing? Everyone gives. He does. Everyone gives the director credit. And, and keep in mind, if you if you want to get into Hollywood, if you want to be a director, that's great. More power to you. You don't have to be a genius to be a director. All you have to do, here's the secret. Here's the secret I'm going to lay on you. you. You just have to surround yourself with really good, smart, talented people who care. And if you get that part right, you can look like you really know what you're doing when, in fact, you may not. Some of the very best moments in this movie were given to me like a gift from the actors, from the crew, from, from Marshall and Judy and Charles and, and Mark and Melissa whether it was good advice, whether it was cut this out of the movie, you don't need it, whether it was add this character because you do need him. Uh, Skip, our editor, it's this, I've said this a hundred times, like balloon should drop. Every time I do one of these podcasts, I say some version of this. This is a collaborative medium. The worst thing the French ever gave us was the word auteur, the auteur theory. This is uh, just like television is. Movies are a collaborative medium. And uh, an um, amazing group of people, it took all of them to make every movie you've ever seen that you loved and every TV show. It wasn't just the guy or the woman who is listed as the director. They had a lot of help. Don't ever, don't ever let them teach you otherwise in film school. You know, we were talking about that well, right okay, when, earlier this afternoon. <laughs> we were talking about that same thing, that about that philosophy. But I think that the one thing that's missing there is that it, it takes a person at the top who will encourage and give yeah. people who are working for them the agency to actually make those suggestions and to, to feel like their input is valued. And so I, I think that you can't discount yeah. well, how important that is yeah. as, as you're, a director. You're a, you're a fool if you surround yourself by great people and then you don't take their advice. Right. You're, yeah, a, you're a very special kind of fool. But here's the so, other yeah. thing, and I, you know, we were talking about this, and I think that it unfortunately is a, is a sort of a fallacy around the thinking that 
if if you just surround yourself with people that are excellent, you'll just come out with a good product because that's not always true. You really do need to have somebody at the top who really, really knows what they want and also how to communicate what they want to everyone yeah. else. And then you give, which you did all throughout. I mean, I owe my career to you. And what I noticed from the get-go was that you knew what you wanted, but you were also like, you know, what is the saying you always said? Don't rob me of any riches. You were very, very Just good. stole from Alan Pakula. Okay. <laughs> you were always very encouraging to, for us, in every department to go off book, show me what you, show me what you, th you know, what you like, show me what you think. And then, you know, you would weigh in yes or no, or I like that. Can you do more? Or I like that. Can you pull it back? And, you know, so I, I believe that, yes, you should surround yourself with excellent people, but that is not the end of the game. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and also, <laughs> and by the way, there's another component we're not talking about, which is luck. you got to have some good luck. Me too. People who say luck does not enter into it are, are, I mean, you try your best to inoculate yourself from the effects of bad luck, but, but there's only so much you can do. A little bit of luck sometimes saves the day and makes you look like you really knew what you were doing. So. Can I ask you something about... Um, what was the idea behind Jesse surrendering the gun and not shooting Todd? Well, yeah, it just it just seemed like uh, I don't. Know, you guys remember when we were talking about it? I, I'm trying to remember. I, 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 it just it's the kind of scene that would have been a turning point for a major plot twist if Breaking Bad didn't exist. In other words, uh, people watching this movie. By the way, some somebody listening to this maybe I don't know why they might have not seen Breaking Bad, but just saw the movie, and now they're listening to this thing. They might be thinking, Jesus, what a bummer that scene was. He should have shot that guy in the face. But we couldn't do that because Todd obviously survived past that moment in time. It, it just it felt like a way to visualize within the fewest number of words possible because it's always better, to, in my opinion, to tell what someone's thinking through their eyes, their faces, instead of what they're saying because, as we all know in real life, people don't say what they mean or they say the opposite of what they mean or whatever, but, you know, behavior minus dialogue is the, is the best indicator. But it just it felt like a moment where we could just show just how crushed, how beaten down, yeah. how... I love that word, use agency. He, Jesse has no agency at this point. He has no will of his own. And it's because this little boy is going to die if he does something. But he's just so squashed flat at this point. It just seemed like a good way to show that. Yeah, right. it's just, I mean, it's. I didn't question it. You, you could, I mean, you could show him being tortured. And I mean, there's obviously days and hours of like horrible things that happened to him that we never saw. Yeah. But all we needed to see was that scene to know how broken he was and to know that like he had nothing left to give and he couldn't turn the tables. Like it, it he was just, he was no longer there. Yeah. There's two sort of uh, trailer sequences. Can you explain to us? Cause to me, when I was watching the movie, I'm like, wait, where's that scene? So I'm sure that people will at me asking, oh, oh, the, where's that scene? Where's the, that the scene? The teaser things. The, the teasers that were shown. Oh, um, the interrogation scene, and also the scene where I guess Jesse's in the in the car. Oh, so glad you asked about this because I did say, you know, people are going to watch these. They're, they are they are purpose built commercials <laughs> that uh, that Netflix shot and did a great job shooting. Uh, they and I did worry when we set out to do them that people would say, "How come that wasn't in the movie?" They, they were never in the movie. Those were commercials shot. In New Mexico. In Promos. New Mexico, uh, uh, weeks and months after we wrapped production, they were never meant as anything but commercials. 
But, but I'm they glad were you asked. Yeah. True, true to the spirit of the movie. So I don't think we weren't doing anything inorganic. But, no, not at all. But I, but I did worry at the time. I'm glad you asked. They were I, so seen like that. I well, thought, yeah, no, they I were, thought I was going to see it. I'm like, when's am I going to see this? Well, scene? and I <laughs> said, I said at the time, I said, you know, I always have this memory. Uh, I love the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and I remember when it came out in 1987. I was in college and watching the preview in a movie theater. I don't know. With, seeing some other movie, some Lethal Weapon movie or something probably, and enjoying it, watching the previews before the movie starts. And there was this new movie with Steve Martin and Michael Caine. And they're walking along the uh, waterfront in Monte Carlo, and and there's a lady feeding the ducks, and one of them pushes her into the water, and she goes splat right on her face, and they keep walking. I laughed my ass off. I went and saw the movie because of that. The damn scene's not in the movie. <laughs> and I remember saying, you know, should we be doing this kind of thing? Because, and I guess the answer hopefully is yes. Hopefully nobody feels cheated. But, uh, but yeah, that, that is the risk you run. And you did write the Skinny Pete scene. So it's not like you handed that off to some other team to, you know, to really It was a together. group effort. But, yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah, I wrote the dialogue on that one. It was, it was fun, fun writing a commercial. I okay. don't think I'd ever written a commercial before. So. Okay, one more thing real quick, because Chris and I were talking about this, and it was really funny because we watched the movie together. Chris had seen it once before, but we watched the movie together, and I said, okay, why'd they call it El Camino? Quick, look up El Camino. Everybody, everything yeah. means something, right? <laughs> so we look it up. So can you talk to us a little bit about the genesis of the title? It, it, just, it's, it just seemed right. Uh, I didn't have it before I started breaking the story, but it just sort of came at some point, probably during the writing of the script. And El Camino means? El Camino means the road in Spanish. And uh, obviously it's the name of, a, of a, a General Motors product. By the way, they were great. They let us, GM very nicely let us use the design of their El Camino. The uh, typeface. Typeface, and, and they let us use their badging from an actual El Camino. And they were, not only did they let us use it, they seemed pretty tickled. I'd love to see them bring the El Camino no. out again. Be, I'm sorry. I, I'm awesome. wondering, because did, did, was Todd's car established on, in Breaking Bad? I can't even remember. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. so it, it was. was. You didn't see it super well in, in, in a super big number of scenes, but it's, it is very much in the show. You see it a couple times in the show. Yeah, because yeah. we saw him in there. Okay. Yeah. So, but, but that wasn't the thought way back then in, you know, 20, whenever he first appears, what, 2012 or What, to have like a movie and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Like, no, that's no. one of those nice writer's kind of accidents that just, you know... Yeah, but you know, there's always an accident waiting, a nice writer's yeah. type accident waiting around the corner if you if you're open your mind to it. Right. If, it feels like kismet. In hindsight, just like uh, Gail Bedecker back in the show loving uh, Walt Whitman right. feels like it was intentional, like it was kiss. Right. You know, it feels right. like kismet. Yes, it feels exactly. like it feels like more luck. Kismet, in my estimation, the, the it uh, kismet is is kind of like uh, in my personal definition of the word is it's more good luck than you deserve. You know, <laughs> and and uh, and to me, like uh, like you know, Walt Whitman, Walter White. But the truth is, if you open your mind to it, you're always going to find something like that, that if you really, really uh, uh, work at it and, and uh, apply yourself, you can always figure out something like that, that the audience will say, man, boy, did they have a long game going here. Boy, did they figure this out way, way in advance. You don't have to, just as long as you mine these little moments, uh, you know, dig, dig the last bit of ore out of the vein, so to speak, yeah. you know, mine these little moments. 
By the way, the whole time we were making the movie, it was called Greenbrier. That's right. Greenbrier the gnome. That's right. <laughs> I That's hate to right. tell you, I'm going to out Judy here. She's She's been working away. She's the only one uh, here at this, uh, uh, at this uh, podcast who has actually not seen the movie yet. No, because I because because Can't but you can wait. You're see it tomorrow night at yeah, the premiere. Yeah, I'm going to see it tomorrow night on and the big I'm gonna, screen. And I'm going to warn you in advance the gnome is not in the movie. I did hear rumors of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're you're gnomeless. <laughs> we had this scene in the movie. It's it's the scene you'll it's the it's the, you'll uh, and I will I'm sorry Joe I'm going to wrap this up you no, got to get to your got to get to your good. boys. But uh, Greenbrier the gnome was our mascot because we, the scene when. Uh, when Jesse first gets to Skinny Pete and Badger's house, he says, I gotta get that car off the street. So they pull the piece of fence up and they drive the El Camino down the, the side of the uh, side yard of the house. And Judy and her wonderful folks in the art department built us this little this little pond. And then we put this cheesy looking vinyl gnome, you know, like a lawn, lawn ornament. And so we had this great shot that, that, that Marshall created for us with pulling the techno crane back just inches off the ground right over the little pond. And, and then the gnome gets run over by the El Camino. And you'll see that on the uh, deleted scenes. But <laughs> I wish I'd put that damn pond right, right next to that. I should have put it right next to the piece of fence because I, I said, no, Judy, put it 10, 10 feet from the fence. And when you're editing this thing, 10 feet of, of pulling a camera back, just it, it takes an eternity, and mm. you, you wind up cutting it for time. But uh, that was Greenbrier the Gnome, and we had a whole bunch of them laying around the... Uh, Remember, the, we didn't uh, have enough. <laughs> that's not why I cut the scene. <laughs> the anyway. name for the hotel, also right. in Virginia, right where the, that's right. Under, right, right. the underground is that sort of secret... So Greenbrier in Virginia or West Virginia? West Virginia. West, West, West Virginia. Virginia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, yeah, so where they uh, there was a uh, you can tour it I think yeah. nowadays where it's uh, the the government was going to repair to this underground bunker at the Greenbrier in case a uh, nuclear war broke out. That's right. It seemed fitting. It seemed at fitting the time. somehow. <laughs> Secrecy. Kind of not you know it's a little the the connection eludes me at this moment but yeah yeah it seemed right so. <laughs> Well, thank you all for coming out here on a Sunday on the day before uh, the premiere. Don't say what day it is. It's a Sunday. <laughs> yeah, we we normally do these it's on God's weekends. Day. And uh, no, I I really I know everybody listening will appreciate all the insight that you guys shared, and and uh, thank you, Joey, for taking time away from the twins. No problem. The movie twins again, first credit mm-hmm. on a movie. Mm-hmm. It's cool, you know. But they're not actually in the movie. That's true. Well, they couldn't have been because they weren't. They were barely. Yeah, they weren't quite born when we started shooting. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, okay. maybe, maybe for the next one. Sequel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Key part of our inspiration. And uh, and and thank you, uh, Mel, out there, and Jen Carroll for materializing this podcast out of thin Yay, air. Yeah, good producer. <laughs> and putting all these Yay. people around a table. Uh, and also thank you, Mike Behrman Trout. Yeah, no problem. Uh, and thanks, Chris Sullivan, for no reason. And uh, thank you, Kelly. I'm glad that you're here. It was fun. It was really fun to get together with all of you guys and do this again. Thank you Welcome for asking back, me. Welcome back, Kelly. Appreciate Yay. it. Thank you. And uh, I hope we can do this again. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so it's funny because we don't have a we don't, we don't have, have a, a sign off. A sign off. How did you guys? How did you end the Breaking Bad podcast? I can't even remember how we. I think did you just kind of said we're like, like we gotta go break bad. That's it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Did you say that? go break bad. Oh, yeah, that's right. Who should we get to say that? You. No. So you're probably, you started your podcast, fine, Kelly. Fine, fine, Let's do it. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much. Um, hopefully, we'll see you again at some point. And now, everybody go break bad. Yeah. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.